The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Under Pressure to Improve Prostate Cancer Care, Unlocking the Power of Advanced Therapeutics to Enhance Outcomes Across the Disease Continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UAR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Uh, so happy to have you here for this uh, lunch presentation, uh, CME, and uh, what a great SUO meeting we're having. Uh, the title of today's program is Under Pressure <laughs> to Improve Prostate Cancer. Okay, don't confuse that with burnout. This is under pressure. We're going to have a, a really unique format here today, which I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, a big part of our focus today is on the advanced therapeutics in localized biochemical recurrence, as well as in advanced prostate cancer. We're going to really focus today just on the most cutting-edge, newest things that are out there, uh, both that have just been recently approved and are in clinical trial development. But it doesn't stop there. We have a great panel to my far left is uh, Matthew Smith from uh, Massachusetts General representing the world of medical oncology, as is Alicia Morgan from the Dana-Farber, also in Boston. And these are two of our penultimate clinical researchers, educators, and teachers, publishers in medical oncology, particularly in GU. And my, my great friend and colleague, uh, Ash Ross, who is uh, leading uh, so much of cutting-edge work in surgical oncology at Northwestern. So I'm Neil Shore. I'm a medical director of Carolina Urologic Research Center. Great pleasure to be here with you today. Our goals are the rationale and evidence for newest treatment options for our patients with prostate cancer. Uh, they just keep coming forward. You know, it's like drinking out of the proverbial fire hose. And that's why the notion around MDT, multidisciplinary team, is so key. And we want to make sure that we're able to help you with some of the strategies, and particularly the evaluation management, as well as adverse events. So the best part about today is we have a new format for you, for our in-person audience and our live virtual audience, is these three faculty are really going to be under a lot of pressure to get the questions uh, um, uh, answered correctly. And you can laugh along with me and to see how well they do. So this is a new format. I hope you like it. Uh, but what are the factors that contribute to treatment decisions that we're all faced with when we're knee-to-knee -knee in the clinic? And so there are cancer-related factors, there's clinician-related factors, there's patient-related factors, and treatment-related. You know, the cancer-related is, is how are we classifying by tumor burden, some biomarkers and molecular features. We go over to the clinician, and I think a big part of it is how comfortable are you with the new therapy? How comfortable are you with the clinical trial data, the guidelines, recommendations? This is incredibly important. Uh, and as we move down to the treatment-related factors, this is the, the sort of under the, the mantra of accessibility. Uh, is it available in your, in your clinic? Is it available where you practice? Um, is there reimbursement issues? Do you have the full team support to, to work this appropriately? And then probably most importantly is that shared decision-making conversation you have with patients. What is the patient uh, uh, input? What's their actuarial survival? Of course, comorbidities, assessing performance status successfully. 
And I think an area that's been really sort of coming into mainstream now is appreciating the patient and the caregiver's preference value. How risk-averse, how risk-seeking are there? And how do you really assess that? I think this is a, a really important. I certainly never heard any of that preference value selection during my medical school or residency training. Um, so um, zero is supporting us, I've already said. A great trusted area of, of, support, of, of, of education and information. I would strongly encourage everybody to use Here it is. Here's what's fun about today's program. We're called, here are the, we're going to have a game uh, format for all of you who've maybe watched Family Feud or things of that nature. And here are the rules of the game, the rules of engagement. Um, I'm going to ask a question, and the first um, faculty uh, member to hit the buzzer will have a chance to answer. They get it right, they get 100 points. They get it wrong, we laugh at them, you know, we ridicule them, make fun of them, of course. And then it opens up to the other two contestants to try to steal. Um, and at the very end, whoever has the most points will win. Here's the first question. What percentage of patients diagnosed with presumed localized disease require active intervention? 25%, 55%, 75%. No one's buzzing in. Whoa. Okay, Dr. Ross. It's always changing, but I'll go with two, 55%. That is correct, Dr. Ross. Okay, nicely done. Okay. Second question, stay awake. What was the hazard ratio for the metastasis-free survival in the phase three embark trial? Whoa, oh. did somebody, doc, is that Dr. Smith? It's a four. Uh, I, need a, I need an exact answer for the, the judges. Oh, it's answer four? You yeah. are correct. Yeah. Okay, no I chance. I was nervous there. No <laughs> chance. I thought you said it was, it was a four, but okay. All right, all right. So you see how the game's going. Um, we, had, we had two correct answers right out of the gate. Okay. Focus on localized prostate cancer and BCR. A lot's happened in the last couple of years. I mean, really uh, uh, pioneering things and practice changing. We use that word a lot, practice changing, but truly are practice changing. You know, let me get into that. So you see on the far right here um, the, the, the table. These are some of the high-risk features which really lead to prostate cancer-specific mortality. Um, the patterns of presentation, depending upon where you are, U.S., in various parts of the U.S., outside the U.S., we see different percentages of metastatic presentation. It could be upwards of 50% in some parts of the world, the Caribbean. Uh, as well, right near the U.S., but also in our metropolitan urban areas, it can be higher. But localized disease is, is still fairly high. Nonetheless, 20 to 40 percent of patients, again, as Dr. Ross said, depending upon what analyses you're looking at, it could be even as high as 20 to 50 percent. So what do we do with those patients who have a localized disease, go forward with surgery, prostatectomy, radiation, or both, and then have biochemical recurrence. We've had a uh, limited amount of level one evidence. These trials have been hard to do. I'm gonna review the Embark trial today. And then we're also gonna talk about some of the patients now as well who have other forms of localized disease. We know across the continuum of prostate cancer, whereas ADT has been the foundation, the mainstay, with the approval of androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, they basically relegate monotherapy ADT 
going backwards from post-chemotherapy MCRPC to pre-chemotherapy MCRPC to NMCRPC to lower high-volume MHSPC, and now BCR, that monotherapy ADT is no longer the clear standard of care. And I think it's this notion around intensification and how we can do better for our patients. Here's a, a, a slide you've probably seen many, many times. It's important. It speaks to the notion and the importance that our patients with MHSBC, regardless of whether they're low volume or high volume, de novo recurrent, synchronous, metachronous, however you want to describe it, monotherapy ADT is, should be relegated to a very small percentage of patients because the, the benefit to delay resistance and, and progression, and most importantly, survival, has clearly been demonstrated and is now in every uh, major guideline recommendation to do doublet to triplet therapy. So here's an important study that came out in ESMO of 2022. We just had ESMO 2023 a few weeks ago. ESMO 2023 was exceptional for the amount of, of, of uh, cutting-edge phase three data, but even some remarkable phase two and phase one studies. But in 2022, Gert Attard presented the Stampede data here. It's a busy slide. You can kind of read through it. But essentially, our Stampede colleagues, largely taking place in the UK and in, little, in Switzerland to some degree, demonstrated that the high-risk patients who underwent two years of ADT and radiation therapy dramatically benefited by adding abiraterone. That's the takeaway, the last bullet in this particular slide. And that's a really important notion, again, getting back to the theme that monotherapy ADT is essentially being uh, marginalized as the optimal strategy. Here we have the phase three trial that has fully uh, accrued. This is similar to the stampede where they added, that was a four-arm trial, a little bit more complicated. This is a two-arm trial, over 1,500 patients global, fully accrued, essentially looking through with a, a bit of a lead-in run-in of either apalutamide or bicalutamide, but essentially for the very high-risk patients who are undergoing radiation therapy, receiving not just ADT, but ADT and apalutamide. There's a similar trial uh, called the Enzorad that's looking at this with uh, enzalutamide. So I think this is extremely important for our high-risk localized patients. Um, neoadjuvants trials. We've never been able, with any sort of significant level one evidence, not even anything really close, to demonstrate that neoadjuvant therapy prior to radical prostatectomy can benefit our patients with uh, high-risk disease. And thanks to the leadership of Adam Keibel uh, and Mary Ellen Taplin, another great example of multidisciplinary team and global uh, enrollment, um, this trial will hopefully read out and hopefully demonstrate that there is a benefit for these patients who are at very high risk for failure, high risk localized disease, RP, getting six months of combined ADT, APA, and six months ADT, APA afterwards. So this is a really you know, provocative study, and I think it's, it's, it's been long overdue, and, and we'll have this readout soon. Let me get to the Embark now, which um, I had the pleasure of leading this with my, uh, my friend and colleague, a great steering committee, but uh, co-PI Steve Friedland and Martin Gleave, and 
Ugo de Giorgio. Uh, and, and essentially, this is a, these enriched, high-risk BCR patients. So patients with a doubling time of less than or equal to nine months. We started this a little over um, eight years ago. It's now nine years. Global study, a three-arm trial, a little over 1,000 patients, one-to-one -one randomization, as you can see, blinded receiving. If you relapsed after RP, RT, or both, you got ENZA plus three-month LHRH versus a placebo and a three-month LHRH, and then an open label, just getting ENZA alone, based upon all of the, and at the 160 milligram dose, based upon all of its prior approvals. We had an interruption, which I really liked, that we put into this as a holiday period or an interruption if you nader to less than 0.2, uh, and you, you could stay off therapy and then ultimately go back onto therapy with the appropriate uh, rise in PSA. <clears throat> Primary endpoint was metastasis-free survival. We presented this at the AUA this year, 2023. Here's the KM. Uh, and you see, when looking at the, the combination of ENZA-LHRH, uh, the hazard ratio of 0 0.47, uh, showing the demonstration of progression benefit. The OS is still early, even though it's trending favorably. Um, we're following these patients out. They haven't been unblinded. And we expect to see an OS readout sometime at the middle end of 2025. Uh, as you would expect, the PSA PFS hazard ratio 0.07, clearly favoring the combination over monotherapy uh, LHRH. Um, I don't have time, I'm not showing you the, the, the KM, but the Enza monotherapy also uh, bested uh, uh, LHRH plus placebo. Hazard ratio there of 0 0.63. Uh, the key thing here that you'll see is that um, the, there's, of course, whenever you have additive therapy, there are going to be some additional adverse events, but nothing unusual or untoward that you would have expected in the combination arm that you hadn't already been aware of in MHSPC, NMCRPC, or MCRPC. Now, in the monotherapy arm, uh, patients did have more uh, breast-related issues because of unopposed uh, AR inhibition without T suppression. Uh, and then just literally um, last week, uh, the FDA has now uh, expanded the label based upon this trial. Uh, it's been published in New England, uh, demonstrating that you now have FDA approval for the use of combination ENZA LHRH for your high-risk BCR patients, uh, as well as the option to choose ENZA monotherapy. We had a presentation at ESMO this year and published in, in, in New England evidence demonstrating a fairly comparable uh, impact on those patients on monotherapy and a, clearly a suggestion that those patients had improved sexual function. So let's see, we've got some questions over here from the audience. Um, all right, let me put this to you first, Ash. The question is, is okay, so now with this new approval, how would you, you have a, B, a BCR high-risk patient comes in to see you, good performance status, um, do you, how do you pick combination versus mono? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the big disruptor, obviously, in this area is, uh, you know, PET-PSMA, which sort of has changed some of this. The, uh, you know, just backing up a little bit, it's important to note that the people on Embark, the intent was them, for them to have complete 
pelvic therapy. So in other words, you know, if they've had surgery, then they've had salvage radiation if applicable, or if they're having outcomes post-radiation. So, the, um, so say that that person comes to my office with a high-risk BCR, I'm, I'm often going to get a PET-PSMA, and then the question is, if conventional imaging usually is going to be negative, PET-PSMA is positive, if they're positive on PET-PSMA, I'm, I'm definitely going to use the bi- bimodal therapy. Um, and I think that in any instance in that situation where I'm thinking about even doing serotactic radiation to a different area, I'm going to use the bimodal therapy, you know, enzalutamide and, and ADT. I probably will not use AD, ADT alone. You know, the, the other question you know, comes up then um, you know, for duration when, when you take them off. I think you know, the nine, nine months or maybe even a little bit less you know, might be a, a good look. Um, and uh, time's up on that one. Okay, one other question here, quick answers maybe, um, uh, Matthew and Alicia. The question that came over is, um, do you ever stop ADT in patients with advanced disease, metastatic, sensitive, or resistant? Resistant, no. Sensitive, yes, with caution. I mean, you have, we take care of real people, and sometimes it's necessary they need an interruption due to their comorbidities or severity of side effects of treatment. Yeah. I would, I would completely agree. It's, it's relatively rare, but when the complications of the treatment outweigh the symptoms that they're having from their disease, sometimes we make those decisions. Okay, great. All right, we ready for some questions? By the way, this is for the audience. Uh, name the band who sings Under Pressure. Well, who said that? Okay, uh, you can keep the pen at your table. <laughs> All right, here's the next question. Uh, what type of radio? Whoa! Oh. Beta emitter, two. That is correct. I don't correct. think that was Dr. fair. Dr. Ross, I was still paying attention to the pen joke. That's really not fair. I, I think Dr. Ross has been watching a lot of Jeopardy. He was quick on the buzzer. All right, ready for the next question? No. no. <laughs> but that is correct. It is a beta. All right. PSMA radiologic therapy has FDA approval for which of the? Whoa, Dr. Morgan's. It's um. Second-line MCRPC after an NHA... Sorry, it's MCRPC after an NHA and taxane. I'm sorry, I was reading too fast. It is number four. Please give it to me. Whoa, I'm going to have to say correct. You almost blew it. But, I know. Yeah, but... No. All right, that is correct. It is for MCRPC currently after an NHA and taxane. But we're going to hear more about uh, data that was just presented at ESMO, not yet published, called the PSMA-4 trial and a lot of other exciting uh, uh, work going into that. So let me hand it over to Dr. Ross. Uh, thank, thank you very much. And so we're going to dive deeper into PSMA as a target, you know, both for imaging and in terms of therapy. So as you all know, you know PSMA or prostate-specific membrane antigen is a highly overexpressed transmembrane protein. So the expression in prostate cancer can be up to a thousand-fold over that of normal prostate tissue. And there are small molecules and even antibodies and mini-bodies that can target prostate-specific membrane antigen. And there's an ability to link those things, like link small molecules to either radioactive tracers for imaging, like F18 or gallium-68, or link it to a payload that can kill tumor cells. So radio ligand therapy would be with something like lutetium-177, which we just found was a beta emitter, or there's also alpha emitters that are being, being trialed. And we found recently that treatment with PSMA-targeted radioligand therapy can improve even overall survival in heavily pretreated metastatic cancer-resistant disease. We're starting to bring that earlier in space. So let's look at that a little bit. 
This is sort of the continuum of, of prostate cancer, and this is the um, phase three trials that are either reported or you know, ongoing or finishing enrollment um, using these radioligand therapies. And as I mentioned, the vision trial, which we'll dive into a little bit more thoroughly, allowed for approval of lutetium PSMA um, in men who had had previous taxanes in previous um, androgen receptor pathway inhibitors like enzalutamide or abiraterone who had metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Moving a little bit earlier, about a month ago at ESMO, uh, the PSMA4 results were published. Again, men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer showing an oncological benefit if they had lutetium PSMA therapy. You know, soon we'll see results of other um, radioligand therapies from like the SPLASH trial, for example, coming out. And PSMA addition, which is in hormone-sensitive patients, has completed accrual. So let's, let's look at this more carefully. Lots of repetition, because I think this is really a, a game-changer for a lot of our field. So what is the, these PSMA radioligand therapies? If we look at the FDA-approved one, the lutetium-177 PSMA-617, the PSMA-617 is a small molecule that recognizes prostate-specific membrane antigen. It's you know, bound to that lutetium beta-emitting payload. When that um, contacts PSMA on a prostate cancer cell, it gets endocytosed, and then it can release that payload to cause DNA damage and cell toxicity. So the VISION trial looked at heavily pretreated metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Um, people had to have had prior chemotherapy, one, two taxanes, like, you know, docetaxel, cabazitaxel, and at least one, if not more, um, androgen receptor pathway inhibitors, like enzalutamide, abiraterone. And it was randomizing those men two to one to get four to six cycles of lutetium PSMA plus standard of care versus standard of care. And there was co-primary endpoints of both overall survival and progression-free survival, and it met both those endpoints. There was about a 40% reduction in cause of death of any, of any cause, so overall survival benefit, and about a 60% reduction in progression of disease if you got the lutetium PSMA. And that translates to people living, you know, kind of a median time, about four months longer if they got the lutetium PSMA, and having about five and a half months or so before progression if they got lutetium PSMA. Now, in this heavily pretreated population, it was not without side effects. Um, in fact, the treatment emergent adverse effects were higher in men getting lutetium PSMA versus those just having standard of care. But remember, these men were living longer. What are some of the side effects that we're talking about across any grade? Um, there are things like dry mouth or xerostomia, um, fatigue, GI side effects, and then hemological side effects like anemia or thrombocytopenia. Uh, as Dr. Shore mentioned, we, you know, we saw at the ESMO this last year, the, I mean, this just a couple months ago, the uh, PSMA-4 trial um, report out. This is again in metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, but in this case, in chemo-naive patients. And essentially, they had to have undergone treatment with one um, androgen receptor pathway inhibitor, like Enza or Abby. And it was stratifying these men to either get the lutetium PSMA, in this case, six cycles, versus a switch in their androgen receptor pathway inhibitor. Um, the outcome of this trial was progression-free survival. So progression-free survival. And it allowed, after that point, for crossover. In fact, of the men who progressed on the Abbey or Enza switch, about 80-plus percent of them then got the lutetium PSMA. 
So let's look at the primary outcome, and they met this primary outcome of progression-free survival. In men, they got the lutetium PSMA. They had about a 60% reduction in progression of their disease. And there were, that translates to about a six-month time, which is really quite exceptional, um, before they had progressive disease. If we looked at the you know, objective response rate, it was about 35% better in people getting lutetium PSMA versus changing their androgen receptor blocker. If you look over at the boxed area at complete responses, about 20% are having complete responses versus only about 3% from the AR switch. In this population, which is a little bit earlier in their treatment course, remember they did not have chemotherapy, they haven't had as many multiple lines of therapy, um, the, the drug was even better tolerated. So lutetium PSMA had even better tolerance. And indeed, the grade three and four or serious adverse events were lower in the lutetium PSMA group than in the people who had the AR switch. That said, you're still seeing you know, dry mouth, you're still seeing some fatigue, GI toxicities, and um, hematological toxicities like re uh, reduced uh, red blood cell counts and thrombocytopenia. But overall, very well tolerated. And I think that's like, um, pushed a lot of investigators to move this therapy earlier or consider it earlier. Um, the PSMA addition trial has now completed enrollment. That's again using the lutetium-177 PSMA. And it's randomizing minimally treated or not treated metastatic hormone-sensitive disease to getting standard of care plus the lutetium PSMA versus standard of care alone. And again, looking at a, a progression-free survival endpoint. So just some take-home thoughts. You know, PSMA is highly overexpressed in prostate cancer. It's now um, routinely used in imaging and staging the disease. Um, and it's a therapeutic target. And along those lines, you know, we were all excited to see the FDA approval of lutetium PSMA 617 for men who are heavily pretreated prior, um, with prior taxane and prior androgen receptor pathway inhibitor. And I think that the results of PSMA 4 are going to lead to an expanded indication. That's again in the CRPC setting, but chemo-naive. The therapeutic benefits being tested in earlier disease settings, and we're um, uh, awaiting that data. And there's other types of PSMA-targeted uh, therapies using different small molecules, using mini-bodies, and those we'll be reporting soon. It'll be interesting to see how they stack up. Um, thank you. Okay, great. So let's take a few questions. Great questions coming in from the audience. Um, so, so, Dr. Ross, uh, how do you explain radioligand therapy to your patients so in a way that's uh you know that in, 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 it's you know patient friendly number one and and do you have a specific uh, ae preventative management plan as as you went through those those aes yes yeah, so um a couple of things one you know it's it's actually extraordinarily easy to sell um or talk about radioligand therapy to patients and um, particularly now that we've moved to truly cancer-targeted therapy. In fact, you know, one of the issues with the VISION trial, because it was a randomized trial, they had some issues early on where people were withdrawing if they didn't get randomized to getting the therapy. So the idea that we're going to, like, send this payload in and it's going to just dump the payload in this prostate-specific membrane antigen way and focus that radiation is very easy for the patients to see. It comes into the second question that they might underestimate the off-target effects, you know, that they, that they may have some salivary gland effects. You know, with longer-term follow-up, there might be some, some renal things we're missing. We don't quite understand the GI toxicity. You know, they might have some anemia. 
I'll actually turf the second part because to my medical oncology co colleagues, how do you think about the side effects and how to prepare them? Um, and then I'd like you to also talk about: Do we have to give four or six cycles? Can you kind of determine as you go? I'll I'll tackle the side effect question, and then I'll I'll give Matthew the four to six uh, cycles. But I think you make such an important point that I hope everyone is really um, really cognizant of that. Patients really are eager to have this treatment. They've asked me to, can you just have the urologist directly inject lutetium into my prostate? That kind of thing, which is obviously not an indication for this. So we have to make sure that they understand the indication, the availability, especially because it is a situation where we have to get these PET scans and we have to you know, ensure that they're eligible before we give them this treatment. And part of that is explaining the side effects, just as Ash said. And I think the cytopenias are the thing that we don't necessarily always talk about, and the long-term effects on bone marrow are just something that we really do need to pay attention to and watch, especially as we need to use things like chemotherapy, PARP inhibitors, and other things that may also, in the future, have effects on the bone marrow when we need to continue treating these patients. And Matthew, four to six. So four versus six, that is one of many questions we don't have the answer to. I can add to that list other things like optimal dose, schedule, other things. The nice thing is there's so much work going on in the area that we will you know, begin to understand this better and I think have more precision in our care. Well, I want to, Matthew, let me stay with you here a second. So great review of the four, um, you know, 84% crossover in that trial. And, uh, you know, right now there's the, the OS, we're not seeing any kind of trend in favor of a benefit. It's early, but in, in, in the confidence interval, cross is one. So how do you think about the notion that if, you don't see an OS benefit, or if the hazard ratio shakes out at like a certain number above one, maybe you want to comment on that, mm -hmm. but you clearly have a, a six-month a benefit, uh, an ARP, a hazard ratio of 0.43, favoring, you know, lutetium, um, and you have positive RPFS and OS benefit in more advanced patients. How do you, how do you think about that? So I begin by saying I think we have to be very careful looking at the data to date because the d survival data is premature. When there's mature survival data, we'll have a better sense. If that all goes away and the hazard ratios for both the ITT and the sensitivity analysis are all below one, then I think all is good. If the ITT remains above one, I think it will remain an ongoing concern. That's a hypothetical, of course. Uh, and then the question would be, do you really need to give the drug early? The other point to note is both of these trials had inactive comparators. So that's not the true choice in our clinic. Right. Well, the challenge with that comparator, I think, is in the real world, we see a lot of this type of sequencing of NHAs, which we all talk about not doing, but it still occurs. And there's always the concern if they had a more active comparator, a taxane, patients would have dropped out. You know, that's the argument at least. But I, I, I hear your point. If, if I could just say two things for the... If for the audience, but also if regulators are out there. We saw some nice talks this morning on PET-PSMA, and, and I hope we get more ability to scan patients uh, after a couple cycles and just see how the response is. If the target's still there, that's an, an opportunity. And then I sort of agree with those points that, like, my take on PSMA4, inactive comparator, you allow for crossover. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival, you know, and everyone who's you know, pro progressing on the control is then getting active therapy. Um, while I completely agree with everything to sum it up, I, I really think it was a positive trial, had some limitations of design, and, but the primary endpoint's what I look at, you know, and I agree, sequencing is a question, big question. Okay, we are ready for some more questions. Ready to watch the show go on with the faculty. Is faculty ready? 
Sure. Yes. Okay. Boom. Which month in 2023 did not have an FDA approval for a combination of a PARP and an androgen receptor inhibitor? This is a very important question. Oh. Dr. Morgan's. June. Uh, that is incorrect. It comes up for a steal. And who? It uh, looks like Dr. Ross got it was, in. I'm going to go with May. That is incorrect. <laughs> Dr. Well, Smith, you've got two choices. July. That is correct, Dr. Smith. Oh, nice. Okay. Nicely played. <laughs> All of you calendar aficionados. All right, ready? We've got one additional question, and then we'll go to this whole really interesting topic of combination therapy of PARPs and AR pathway inhibitors. Next question. Which of the following statements is true? There are no differences in side effects amongst PARP inhibitors. There's no difference in side effects between an AR pathway inhibitor and an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor. Daily pill count among the... Whoops, oh. Dr. Smith. Four. And the answer is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Beginning in 2023, there are now three approved PARP inhibitor NHA combinations. So kind of incredible that this just happened over the summer. Uh, in addition to things like Embark, in addition to potential uh, um, earlier um, opportunities for PSMA RLTs. So I think with that, we'll hand it over to you, Alicia. Thank you so much. Um, it's difficult to give a talk after I'm so riled up after <laughs> these questions, but, but uh, I love this format. So let's, let's continue. So we're really going to talk about those uh, PARP inhibitor ARSI um, combinations. And as we just heard, you know, it really has been a summer of approvals and opportunities for our patients, which we all, I think, are really excited about, particularly because we know patients who have BRCA mutations, BRCA2, I think, uh, most of all, um, are both, these are common patient populations or a more common patient population than the other HR alterations, and they have a poorer prognosis and more rapidly progressive disease. So options for them is really, it's really a critical piece of taking care of them. So here we can see that over the years, we've actually had multiple approvals in prostate cancer for PARP inhibitors, certainly Olaparib and Rucaparib approved here on the Profound and Triton II studies. And these are as single agents, um, really Olaparib having a broader approval for HRR alterations assessed in that Profound trial. And this is approved pre and post chemotherapy. Triton II led to the approval of Rucaparib, which is approved after chemotherapy, and both require NHA exposure in advance of that. And Triton II also led to Rucaparib's approval in a BRCA-mutated population. The three combinations that were approved this summer include Olaparib and Abiraterone through Propel, Telazoparib and Enzalutamide in Talapro 2, and Nurepirib and Abiraterone in Magnitude. And we're going to go through all of these, and here we can see the, the, the answers to those approval date questions uh, that were just discussed. So Propel um, was one of the three registration trials, randomized phase threes, that led to a, the approval of this combination. And this study, I think, really interestingly, was based on data from a phase two study called Study 8 that was presented years before, published years before, that looked at patients who had MCRPC and, um, and, and treated them with abiraterone and olaparib and found in an all-comers population that there seemed to be a, a, an advantage to that combination um, versus abiraterone alone. And so the study included an all-comers population in first-line metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, patients could not have been exposed to prior abiraterone. Um, and, and so really they're, they're enrolled and randomized 
one-to-one to treatment with abiraterone as a first-line MCRPC treatment, which is a highly active control arm, um, versus abiraterone and elaprib. And really, the primary endpoint that's important is the radiographic progression-free survival, and overall survival, absolutely important, too, is a secondary endpoint. And again, this is an all-comers enrollment. All patients did undergo um, HRR testing after enrollment, after randomization, to make sure that that was included in the analysis as a piece of information. And here we can see the, um, the data for radiographic progression-free survival for those patients who had BRCA mutations. And what we can see is that the combination of elaparib and abiraterone was clearly superior in, RP, in terms of RPFS versus abiraterone alone. And again, I want to emphasize that abiraterone as a single agent here with, with ADT is a standard of care for first-line MCRPC. It's a highly active control arm. Um, and this hazard ratio here is 0.24. This did meet the primary, uh, primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival in the attention-to-treat-all-comers population as well, but led to the approval in May of um, elaparib and abiraterone in combination for patients with BRCA alterations. Here we can see the overall survival data also presented. This was the third data cut and does not show a statistically significant improvement in overall survival for the combination versus abiraterone because this data is not yet mature. They will be releasing another, uh, not pre-planned, but another planned um, data cut in the future. And so because of the way the alpha was spent, this does not meet statistical significance here, but clearly a trend. Talapro 2 is another of these combination studies. This also included an all-comers population, but HRR status was identified and clarified before patients really got in, and they were put into cohorts based on their, um, their HRR alteration status. This, again, included patients who had this first-line MCRPC status. They could have been exposed in the past to treatment with abiraterone as well as docetaxel, and they were enrolled and randomized to treatment with enzalutamide, a very active control arm here, versus enzalutamide and talazoparib, um, and they were followed, again, for a radiographic progression-free survival primary endpoint, and uh, key secondary was overall survival. Um, I think, importantly, as this was an analy- as analyzed by the FDA, all of the HR status was determined before randomization, from what I understand. Um, and here we see the primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival uh, in the intention to treat all-comers population, and this inc- uh, suggests that talazoparib and enzalutamide as a combination was clearly superior in terms of radiographic progression-free survival to enzalutamide alone, um, and that hazard ratio is 0.63, and this led to the approval in June of the combination of talazoparib and enzalutamide, but this is for a little bit of a broader label for HRR alterations in MCRPC. Um, the final overall survival data is, is quite immature for this study and is still pending. And magnitude is the third of three uh, of these registration trials. In this study, looked also at first-line MCRPC and looked at the combination of niraparib and abiraterone. So in this study, uh, as you can see in the schema, they also clarified the HRR status prior to um, randomization and treatment, and they had two cohorts. The first cohort was the biomarker positive, so HRR positive um, altered cohort, and the second cohort was a cohort of patients who did not have HRR mutations. And both of these were followed and randomized actually independently to treatment with abiraterone versus abiraterone and niraparib. And again, we have abiraterone as as an agent here that is highly active as a first-line MCRPC control arm in patients who had not had previous exposure to abiraterone. 
Um, the biomarker negative population, when analyzed for, for progression-free survival, uh, was found to not benefit from the combination of norepirib and abiraterone versus abiraterone alone. And so there was a pre-planned analysis that shut down for, for feasibility reasons uh, that cohort, so, or for, for futility reasons, I should say, that second cohort. So all of the data I'm going to present coming forward is really for the biomarker positive population. Again, randomized to abiraterone with or without norepirib, and the primary endpoint here, radiographic progression-free survival, OS as a secondary endpoint. And here we can see radiographic progression-free survival for the BRCA-specific cohort. Um, and the combination of norepirib and abiraterone was highly statistically significantly uh, beneficial in terms of RPFS versus abiraterone alone, that really importantly active control, in this first-line MCRPC setting. Um, and I think this, again, recognized as critically important, especially for this patient population, led to the approval here of, uh, of the norepirib-abiraterone combination in this situation for BRCA-positive patients. We also have additional endpoints. Here's the OS uh, data here on the left. And in a multivariable analysis, it, it, this does suggest that the nirapirib-abiraterone combination appears superior in terms of survival versus abiraterone alone in, that, in the multivariable an, uh, analysis there. And then time to symptomatic progression and time to cytotoxic chemotherapy also prolonged with the combination versus abiraterone alone. So to summarize all of this, you can see we've got three trials, we've got three combinations. Two of the combinations are PARP plus abiraterone. One is a PARP plus enzalutamide. And we can see these, these uh, differ slightly in some of their hazard ratios, but it's a consistent message. In these patients with HRR mutations, and particularly in those patients with BRCA mutations, these combinations are better than single-agent NHAs, which I think is really incredible because we actually know that those are really active agents in their own right. Um, and then the approvals varying slightly with laparib abiraterone and nirapirib abiraterone being focused on BRCA mutation patients in the first-line MCRPC and the talazoparib enzalutamide combination really focused on an HRR a little bit broader, HRR population in MCRPC. It's also, I think, important to recognize that the success in MCRPC led to interest in, in looking at these in metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. So nirapirib and abiraterone are being explored in the amplitude trial here in the MHSPC setting, and then talazoparib enzalutamide in that MHSPC uh, setting as well in talapro-3. So amplitude and talapro-3 hopefully going to be telling us at some point in the near future how we can do things in an earlier state. RPFS is the primary for both. I think... We've talked a little bit about safety related to radiopharmaceuticals. Uh, for PARPs, we're also watching the bone marrow and making sure that um, we're watching for thrombocytopenia and anemia in particular. We also have to think about GI effects, nausea, diarrhea, those kinds of things, especially as you're starting the treatment, uh, but those things tend to, to wear away. And fatigue, I think, with most of our treatments is something we need to, to, to pay attention to. So as we round this all up, dosing and administration considerations for these combination therapies can be a little different. I didn't mention that norepirib and abiraterone actually comes in a combination tablet, so I think this is important as our patients are considering co-pace for oral agents, something to, to keep in mind. And so that does differ uh, for these. Um, certainly we have to remember HRR testing, and this has to happen in terms of germline testing and somatic testing to really understand the breadth of opportunities for our patients, and certainly as well the implications for their families when we're thinking about germline testing. Um, and patient education is, is something that we absolutely need around this too, so that they can 
be aware, ask questions, and, and even educate their, their clinicians along the way, which is always helpful. Um, and in terms of that testing, um, and, and maybe Dr. Shore can ask some questions on this and, and hear about different approaches, germline testing is actually recommended for all patients with high risk and very high risk localized disease and greater. So everybody with metastatic disease should be getting germline testing. We should keep that in mind. Then somatic testing is currently recommended for metastatic patients and particularly for MCRPC patients. This is a blanket recommendation. Um, so we all need to be really thinking about this and implementing it in a systematic way in our clinics. That's a challenge, and that's one of the things we may want to discuss. So thank you. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I've got three questions. We'll kind of go through this in rapid fire. I loved your summary on the germline. But it, and even if you're low risk, grade group one, two, but you have a significant family history, which is more than just did your dad have prostate cancer, but did maybe your mother had premenopausal breast cancer. Maybe you have a sister with ovarian cancer. You know, these are really important family histories that put you at increased risk to think about getting germline testing and doing a good family history. But my first question that's coming from the audience, uh, Alicia, and then I'm going to do the follow-up to yours with a tougher one for you, Matthew. I'm just giving you a little heads up. So a patient comes in now. You have this embarrassment of riches. I've been on monotherapy ADT, and now I have MCRPC. I didn't get tested. Shame on the urologist who was doing the monotherapy and didn't do the testing. When that doesn't happen with SUO attendees, though. But now they come to see you, and you've got these, this proverbial embarrassment of riches. You've got three options. Cost isn't an issue. How do you make a decision? Well, first... They're BRCA, they're BRCA2. So they have, they have testing, and now they're BRCA2. Yeah. Okay. So... I think, you know, in this particular setting, um, if cost is not an issue, then, you know, these, these combinations all work. And so let's, I'm going to refocus that question on things that actually, I think, differentiate. So cost may be one of them. There is one of the, the options does have that combination tablet. And from a patient copay perspective, that may be important. We also, I think, recognize that, um, you know, the population of people getting ADT alone in MHSPC is actually hopefully decreasing. And so there may be some consideration if a patient's been exposed to abiraterone in the first line, would I want to switch? I can't answer that question. Switch to talazoparib and enzalutamide. I don't know if that's helpful. I just want to put that out there. But I do think that's something that some clinicians will think about. And then the third thing I would mention is that the labels are slightly different. So if we have a BRCA2 patient, that would be a patient that could have any of those combinations. But if you are considering this with another HRR mutation, and we don't have, I think, the gene-by-gene level data for this com- these combinations to suggest how beneficial this may be gene-by-gene, but we wouldn't be able to use um, elaparib, abiraterone, um, or abiraterone, neraparib for anybody with the other HRR alterations. Yep. So you, you kind of answered the, my question that I was going to ask Matthew, but I'd like to ask you this anyway. So the patient now comes in, they've been on doublet, maybe even arguably triplet therapy based upon your leadership in Arisense, and they come to see you, they're MCRPC now, they've had either Abby or Enza, and now they're BRCA2. They've been on it, but now you get the BRCA, you, you, you see it, and they want to know, okay, can I just go on to monotherapy PARP inhibitor, or do I continue the ARPI, or do I switch? I would do the switch. I would not continue the ARPI. do elaborate monotherapy. We have no basis for doing that continuation uh, at the present time. Certainly has the potential to add toxicity. We have no, uh, we have no knowledge that it would improve efficacy. Okay. And uh, um, Dr. Ross, the question here about, you know, you know how do you implement effectively, efficiently 
genetic testing in a, in a busy urology practice? There's, there's lots of different models. L luckily, if you engage with some of the companies that offer the genetic testing, you'll find that they do testing that goes to the patient's house, even, because they're directed patient testing if you want blood. Um, they can do swabs that are remote. They have genetic counselors that are available, you know, basically by telemedicine. And then there's some great talks and a great paper in JCO practice recently showing that video education can help the patients get primed. Um, so, you know, it's, there's a little bit of activation energy for everybody, but I think you've just seen how important this class of drugs are. They should be moved, I think, earlier and earlier, and we won't be able to identify who's going to have maximal benefit unless we're doing the testing. So it's less of a barrier than you think if you're not already doing this in high volume in your practice. Yeah. A lot of opportunities if you don't have a genetic counselor to go through telehealth and, and a lot of the companies that do the testing. Okay, we ready for some, uh, you ready for this next question? Get ready, get your arms limbered up. I want to tell you, this one, this is probably the hardest question of all the questions. And I'm, and I'm, I'm being serious. Ready? CDK4-6 inhibitors inhibit the, whoa, urologist, Wayne. It's going to be 2RB, thus impacting cyclin D. What's your answer? Two. Yeah, maybe I have it wrong, but it's going to be um, the uh, inhibits the phosphorylation of RB, thus impacting the cyclin D pathway and cell cycle. That is correct. Whoa. <laughs> I got to get impressive. mad. We got to really, we got to get mad. That was crazy. Wow. That was impressive. Okay. Uh, Dr. Smith, here we go. So you've heard uh, really the results of recently completed phase three trials that have defined the new standards of care. In prostate cancer, my talk's going to be a little bit more forward-looking, looking at really emerging therapies. I'm going to focus on two phase three approaches. The first is, we, we just heard from Dr. Ross, CDK4-6, its important role in, um, in cell cycle progression. There's upside, upstream signaling, promotes activation of D-cyclin CDK4-6 complex. This complex phosphorylates RB, resulting in release of E2F and leading to transcription of downstream genes, uh, leading to transition to the S phase. CDK4-6 inhibitors inhibit phosphorylation of RB, inducing cell cycle arrest. And there's abundant information that you know, this pathway is uh, genetically disrupted in a variety of different cancers. There are three CDK4-6 inhibitors approved for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. Abemocyclib is also approved as an adjuvant therapy in early-stage breast cancer. Abema is a selective and potent ATT ATP competitive inhibitor of CDK4-6, uh, and it's administered orally on a continuous dosing schedule. And the question posed here is, could this approach have a role in other cancers? Certainly, preclinical data supports that. Androgen receptor signaling activates CDK4-6 to sustain prostate cancer cell proliferation. Upregulation of cyclin D1 is a potential mechanism of resistance to AR inhibition. And consistently in preclinical models, abemocyclib induces cell cycle arrest and prostate cancer growth inhibition. Thus, CDK4-6 inhibition may represent an effective therapeutic strategy in prostate cancer. Uh, and that's exactly the question that's being addressed in two phase three studies. This is the design of the phase three cyclone two study in first line MCRPC. This began as a lead-in study with a then a randomized phase two, and then when it met its pre-specified efficacy endpoints to continue, it was expanded into a phase three study. Um, the primary study endpoint is radiographic progression-free survival. 
eligible patients randomized to abipred plus abemaciclib or abipred plus uh, prednisone, uh, plus placebo, excuse me. Um, This study's fully accrued, uh, and it's an event-driven analysis. So we look forward to the results of uh, of this trial uh, in the near term. The subsequent study, Cyclone 3, this is looking at MHSPC. The key eligibility criteria for Cyclone 3 are high-risk MHSPC or CSPC, defined as greater than or equal to four bone metastases and or one visceral metastasis. Total of 900 patients will be randomized in a one-to-one manner to abipred plus abema or placebo. Stratification factors include de novo MHSPC, visceral metastasis, uh, and prior dose ataxel for MHSPC. The primary endpoint is RPFS with the key secondary endpoints listed there. Now, there's a, there's a well-established role of combination therapy of VEGF TKIs with immunotherapy in renal cell carcinoma, and a, and a good case can be made for this similar combination approach in prostate cancer. So angiogenesis and evasion of immune destruction are hallmarks of cancer that supports the rationale for combining VEGF-TKIs and immunotherapies that target PD-1, PD-L1. Tyrosine kinase inhibitors are involved in tumor growth and angiogenesis, and certain mutations may be associated with prostate cancer aggressiveness and a poor prognosis. Targeting these kinases may promote an immune-permissive tumor microenvironment and enhance responses to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we think of prostate cancer as this immune desert, which is generally not responsive to immunotherapy, but TKIs may render that sensitive uh, to subsequent immunotherapy. And this is the approach that's been evaluated in the COSMIC trial. Uh, So this is a study uh, of the TKI cabozantinib in combination with atezolizumab. The study enrolled patients who are heavily pretreated, um, having had prior enzalutamide and or abiraterone. Prior chemotherapy was allowed if it was given for MCSPC. Um, and um, the results are as shown here. Relatively, pro- I'd say, promising data, particularly given each of these agents as monotherapy are not seen as effective in prostate cancer. So complete plus partial um, resp- objective response rate was 23% disease control rate of 84%, stable disease at 20, greater than 24 weeks, 17%. Uh, and then you see the waterfall plot showing a high rate of uh, a post-treatment PSA declines. And notably, uh, more of these declines were seen in patients who had visceral metastasis and or extra pelvic lymph nodes. Based on this uh, promising uh, early phase study, led to the uh, phase three contact two trial. Uh, This study included patients with MCRPC, prior treatment with one and only one NHT for castration-sensitive locally advanced prostate cancer, MCSPC or MCRPC, no prior chemotherapy, ECOG performance set is zero or one. Eligible patients randomized to cabo-atezo versus physician choice of the AR pathway inhibitor switch the primary endpoints of PFS and OS, secondary endpoint of objective response rate. The um, primary endpoint was met according to a press release, and we look forward to lots more details about this study when the entirety of the data become available. A really interesting approach, two drugs that don't work uh, 
alone in prostate cancer, at least not very well, strong biologic rationale for the combination, and then you see that appear to bear fruit in both the phase, phase one, two, and phase three trial of that combination. So back to you, Neil. Okay, fantastic. I, I, I love the work that you're doing on, uh, with uh, bemocyclic because it's uh, the bane of our existence is when patients get started on a therapy, regardless of the cancer type, it's developing resistance to that specific therapy. Uh, the novel hormonal agents, the AR signaling inhibitors are fairly ubiquitous along the journey. And so delaying that resistance by adding a drug with a novel mechanism of action, the cyclin pathway, I think is, is very uh, commendable. And I, I applaud that, that trial and your leadership on that. Um, one of the questions is, um, you know, again, we're going to go over this, but I think it's important for, for SUO is, and, and Alicia, maybe you could take a first stab at it, is tips on better coordinating the MDT, especially as it relates to urology and medical oncology. Now that we have radioligand therapy, there's nuke meds coming into it, certainly rad onks, geneticists, pharmacists. How, how, what, what are you learning in, in your experience? How to really make it, we talk about it a lot, but what are some really granular ways to make it work better? I think one of the consequences of the unfortunate awfulness of the pandemic was that we actually are doing our MT, MDT tumor boards via Zoom or Teams, and you know that has been pretty transformative because I've been in situations where I'm driving the kids and still on MDT, or I'm you know not I'm in my home instead of in the office, and uh, I can zoom in on things, I can look, and I can make sure I'm understanding, and, and I can be present and be together with everyone despite all of the other obligations in life. So I think that's been great. I think, you know, we don't all have the opportunity to be co-localized. I'm fortunate that, that I have that, but I am not co-localized with every colleague that I work with on every day that I'm in clinic. And so ensuring that there's just good and open lines of communication, um, whether it's text, email, phone, whatever it is, um, and ensuring that you have that collegial relationship, I think is, is really valuable. But the virtual, tu virtual tumor boards, I think, have been really great. So, so I, I, I'd like to hear both Matthew and Ash comment, but you know, I was talking to a friend before the meeting, and uh, you know, 20 something years ago, there was this sort of, you know, um, constant, you know, refrain of, well, you know, this is our turf, you know, urology, medical oncology, radiation oncology. There was a lot of that. Um, but as time's gone by, we have a person power shortage in all the specialties, and we have an expansion of the population. And now patients are really kind of falling into this problem of they can't be seen in a timely way. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see this sort of stress or conundrum that, we, that we've evolved to. But Matthew, what have you learned? So I, I was fortunate to grow up in a place that had a very busy surgical practice, urology practice at MGH. So my colleagues were always, there was no turf battles. <laughs> uh, you know, we always, we shared patients, you know. So I, I think, you know, if you don't already have, if you have an MTD, then stay committed, put in the time. It's one of, it's one of the most rewarding parts of what, about what I do. Uh, and if you don't, then I think you have to be prepared for the inefficiencies and the requirement for that kind of dedication. But it really is worth it at the end. Um, and I'm very fortunate in my shop where, like, my closest colleagues um, beyond my few immediate, include my immediate GU medical oncologists as well as radiation oncology and urology. So we really disease group focused and have been for decades. Uh, and that's been extremely helpful. 
You know, just a quick comment. I think that for, the, for this audience, it's, it's also, there's two ways you can build efficiency. You can have the each patient visit be shorter, you know, or you can like have the, you know, referral process and stuff, you know, be truncated. So uh, for the second approach is sort of like you're going to bring it all in-house. You're going to be your urology practice, but you're going to also give some of these therapies or know what to give. The first process might be even easier, and it's, it stresses the importance for those of you out there that are surgeons like myself to really know this data. Like, do I know the metastatic space as well as Dr. Morgans or Smith? Absolutely not, you know, but do I know enough that I can look at the patient, give some pre-counseling about, like, you're going to, they're going to talk about these therapies. If it was me, I'd really prioritize these two. Here's why. And then send you off to make that visit a little bit less decision uncertainty. At least the patient knows to read beforehand, can really prime it for faster throughput, you know, and then I think there's lots of other techniques. No, thank you, all three of you, for that. All right, uh, we've had a little change in the rules. This is the last question. And guess what? This last question is worth double points, and we're doing that to avoid a tie. (laughs) So get ready. Audience ready? Okay. Both germline and somatic testing are needed for patients with advanced prostate cancer. It's Dr. Oh, Ross. I should, uh, not pressed. It's true. Okay, that is correct. I, I, I'm sorry, I had to take it. I already answered one correct. I did tell him before we started that if <laughs> I, I did not so, answer any so the questions, then the I had to get one. The thing to do would have been to like hold back, um, oh, but uh, I, I couldn't stop. do it. <laughs> you win. As All right. <laughs> so yes, I mean we had great sessions here at SUO. We've been having them now at oh, uh, virtually every meeting. It's not, you know, if you're going to have an MDT or if you're going to test. It's, 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 no, longer, it's, it's no longer even rhetorical. It's, you've got to have a multidisciplinary team, uh, and you've got to start testing. Um, we saw some really provocative data on the all-comers that uh, uh, Alicia presented. It's still an area of debate. The sequencing in patients who've had prior combination ADT, when they get to the MCRPC, how are you going to think about that? But you'll be much better informed, and you'll have that vaunted, personalized ability to be, do precision medicine if you're doing the testing. And then, of course, you know, this issue around you know, developing resistance to the AR pathway, I think, is incredibly important. Of note, the RLT, uh, form, PSMA-RLT, like, you know, Lutetium 617, we're not aware of any, uh, uh, any resistant pathways. Uh, so that's a very also another interesting aspect of radiopharmaceuticals. So test, understand it, and you'll, you'll, you'll provide better care. I think we talked about the MDT. This is, a, I think, a nice summary for it and why it's so important. Um, as Matthew said, it's incredibly rewarding. It's really rewarding to dialogue with your colleagues. Patients like it. You can do it virtually. It's probably one of the major silver linings of the pandemic. We got to do things virtually, and that doesn't appear to be going away. Uh, Patients really are looking for that. Um, Zero, great uh, trusted source of information. Uh, You can download a lot of great information uh, from them. Um, Here's more of that. And they're really great at pushing out clinical trial literature. And everybody here, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, we do clinical trials, but that's how we change clinical practice. And that's really the ultimate North Star about why we're all physician scientists. So uh, zero is great. Uh, any last questions? Maybe I'll throw this back to you quickly, Matthew, is 
you know, we see differences in AE profiles that everyone's familiar with between, say, abiraterone versus enzalutamide, apalutamide, darolutamide. But what about the PARP inhibitors, which are kind of new to the field mm-hmm. for many of us, the safety side effect profile of PARPs? I think that there are differences, uh, and there are differences of the combination. So you really need to look at those carefully uh, when you make decisions for an individual patient. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, thank you for that. Um, well, is everybody ready? And, uh, well, you know, so I may need a hand here. It's kind of heavy. <laughs> it's, not, it's like the Wimbledon trophy. <laughs> and the winner is Dr. Ross. Oh, thank you. Get that through the scanner at the airport. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's coming with me to Chicago. I just like to say, once again, I feel like I've lost at life, but won at this game. I shouldn't be <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pip. Okay, that was fantastic. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great uh, rest of the meeting. Safe travels home. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity has been developed in partnership with Zero Prostate Cancer. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UAR 860. This activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Estellas and Pfizer Incorporated, AstraZeneca, Exelixis Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lilly, Merck and Company Incorporated, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.